Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen, except, of course, it is Mornings without Carmen this morning. This is Peter Kapsner filling in for today on the 22nd of October. And I love filling in for Carmen on Fridays because that means that I get to be joined by good friend Adam Holtz from PluggedIn.com to talk about so many of the different movies, much of the music, the different shows coming out on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, all of these streaming services that we seem to have to invest in these days to watch anything at all. And at the end of last hour, I was joined by Chris Martin. And if you're listening, then if you weren't listening, I highly recommend going back to listen to that segment because we talked at the end a bit about the influence and the impact of the social media platform TikTok and what the influence is having on young girls in particular. And I think we all know the social and relational and psychological spiritual effects, but it's it's actually starting to have a physical effect. And when I was talking with Adam during the top of the hour break just a second ago, he said, hey, have you seen the story about the physical effects? And I said, Adam, we literally just covered that. So let's uh, bring Adam in right now to talk about this. Adam, you are a parent of three children, if I remember correctly. That is correct. That's yeah. Correct. So how do you handle we – we had a listener write in towards <laughs> the end of last hour saying, do we really even need to be on these platforms at all? And, and I made the comment towards the end of last hour saying that if these, if these platforms tend to be so destructive on so many different levels – why do we play around with them at all in the name of relevance? What are we doing here? We don't suggest to our kids to have a little bit of cocaine and that's fine or a little bit of porn. We say no to these things because we know that they're going to have a negative impact. Is there a case to be made to be on these platforms at all? Well, here's the here's what I would say. I think that when we're talking about parenting, we always have to realize that we need to take it on a child-by-child basis. And there may be kids that have no problem at all being on social media. And there may be kids that absolutely get sucked into it. Here's a case in point. Um, My daughters have a little program. It's not, well, let me explain. Um, I'm not going to say the name of it because honestly, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it had you in it somewhere, but it's not YouTube. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's just one of these things where you can take a picture and you can draw funny things on it, right? Right. Um, and so they love giving me bushy hair and putting makeup on me or, you know, <laughs> generally defacing dad in a way that feels like a lot of passive aggressive fun. And, <laughs> right, right. And we have, we have good laughs on that. And, and I'm not, um, I, I haven't put my foot down on that. Okay. So they have a friend that has the same one. And this is where we needed to do a little bit more work because we didn't know this. There is a social media component that enables you to post any kind of filtered pictures you take. And so this young girl's 12, I think, and her parents found out she had created an account and she had 2,000 followers. And my daughter said, oh, yeah, the last time we stayed overnight with her, all she wanted to do was take pictures and upload it. I'm like, so you knew about this? And they're like, well, yeah, but we didn't know what to do about it. 
my daughters didn't have any interest in creating a social media platform, thankfully. Now, that has probably less to do with my parenting and more to do with their personality, right? They just, they weren't interested in it. But they have a friend who very much got caught up in that rush mm. of having followers, having likes. And when her parents found out, um, well, let's just say she's not leaving the house and it's not because of COVID. Mm. Um, she's, she's grounded. And, and they were furious. And I think as parents, we're constantly um, engaged in this process of if our kids have smart devices, and my 13-year-old has a smartphone, and my 11-year-old doesn't have a smartphone, but she's got an old iPod that gives her some of the similar things when she's around the house. And so we have to talk about, okay, what are you engaging in? Um, we don't, neither one of them have any social media accounts. Um, my 15-year-old son does have an Instagram account, but he primarily uploads videos of him playing guitar and he interacts with other musicians. And it's not the thing that his life revolves around. Right. It's not... He's not addicted to it. He might post a video every couple weeks. Um, and so I don't feel like it's a terribly problematic thing for him. And in fact, it has become a source of creative interaction in an area where he's doing something that usually doesn't involve screens, which is playing guitar. Mm. So all of that to say, I think we have to know our kids. I think we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I think if we say yes to social media, we need to have parameters in place. And even when you try to have parameters in place, you may find your kids discovered something you didn't even know about. Yeah. And that's part of the yeah. deal too. Having said all of that, the longer you can wait before you give them a smartphone and the longer you can wait before they get on social media, the better. Yeah. Because it, it's also, it's a little bit of a Pandora's box and, and okay, I'm not going to mix my metaphors. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle once you let it out. <laughs> No, it's so well said, Adam. I so appreciate that. To be shepherding our kids in, in some of these ways is is really important, not to just stick a phone in their hands and say, off you go. There's just so much that's happening there. We'll step away for just a minute. When we come back, let's get into your content for today as well, which includes the uh, release of Dune, an old school movie made in a new school way, as well as some movie delays from some big studios and the fact that Adele is back in the news. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. You've already been hearing the voice of Adam Holtz from PluggedIn.com, who joins us on Fridays to talk about different dimensions of media, whether it be music, whether it be what's streaming in some of our apps on our televisions, what's being released in theaters these days. And Adam, I saw that Dune is being released. And uh, if I remember correctly, and, and my, my memory is vague, admittedly, that this came out originally maybe in the 1980s. Do I have that right? Yeah. You do. Uh, it came out in 1984. David Lynch, um, he of, uh, well, he's done a bunch of other stuff that was all very R-rated and very weird. And this was rated PG and very weird. Uh, <laughs> it's a delightfully terrible movie because it's so bonkers you can't even follow what's going on. <laughs> now, 
I will say for those who are not up to speed on Dune, Dune was a 1965 sci-fi novel by a guy named Frank Herbert. And some people have gone so far as to say Dune is to science fiction what Lord of the Rings is to fantasy. Wow. I mean, it's wow. it's up there maybe with, you know, some of Isaac Asimov's stuff. I mean, there are a couple guys that were, you know, just laid this seminal foundation for what science fiction would become. The reason that that movie was so crazy is because the story is crazy. And uh, and by crazy, I don't mean like insane. It's it's multi-layered. It deals with politics, religion, romance, gender relationships. It has religions that look like Islam. It has religions that look like Catholicism. Um, it deals with warfare. It deals with economics. Like he really was one of the first to try to create this really multifaceted world that touched on every aspect of human existence. That's made it really difficult to film. That's why the 1984 version, while unintentionally entertaining, if you haven't read the book, you don't have any idea. And they made it into a very faithful miniseries in 2000 that just wasn't very good. And now Canadian director uh, Denis Villeneuve, I've been practicing my French. That is impressive. That's very impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he did uh, Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival or two of his other recent movies that were critically hailed. He's taking his shot at it. And the core of the story revolves around two warring families on this planet called Arrakis. And on Arrakis is a substance called spice, which they harvest from the sand. Uh, and spice is a hallucinogenic drug that everybody who drives a spaceship needs to drive it. So the space navigators and the space navigating guild, they bend time and space using this hallucinogenic drug. Uh, so without it, all commerce across the universe comes to a screeching halt. So it's like gasoline and coal and solar energy and rocket fuel all rolled into one. And as you can imagine, people want it. There's a war over it. There's a young character named Paul Atreides who is a messianic figure. Um, and there's a group of kind of vaguely, um, they're a desert nomadic people, and we can draw parallels to what kind of people in our world those would be similar to who have predicted this coming Messiah. And it looks like Paul is going to be that Messiah. And um, spoiler warning, he is. I'm just going to spoil that. <laughs> um, but this movie is so, it's two hours and 35 minutes, and it only gets halfway through the story. From a plugged in perspective, really compelling story of good versus evil, a lot of death. It's PG-13, but we see actually quite a bit of blood for a PG-13 movie, and there's some other elements that you'll want to check out our full review to get up to speed before you say yay or nay to this one. It, it felt pretty grim, even as it tells a classic story of good versus evil. Hmm. Adam, you've got me triggered, i got to admit. If, if you're going to reference Frodo and Sam and Aragorn and Legolas and Gandalf and the gang and suggest that Dune is as seminal as Lord of the Rings, man, I might have to disagree with that part of it. People really say that about the, about the sci-fi world, huh? Oh, they do. Dune is, uh, you know, I, up there with probably iRobot and the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. I'm not sure there's anything else that's really even in the same ballpark. Maybe, you know, some of Arthur C. Clarke's stuff, 2001 especially, um, childhoods and some of those books, but yeah, it's it's definitely in the pantheon. Mm. And before we take a break, a quick uh, text from a listener coming in about Dune. I don't know if you've heard this. I had not heard this piece of it, but you referenced the idea of the of the messianic theme within yeah. Dune. A listener writes in texting this before my drive into work. 
Uh, it says that while it won't show up in the new Dune film within the books, spoiler alert, Judaism is one of the surviving religions across space. Have you heard anything about this? I did not know that part of the of the book or the trilogy. Well, it I would have to go back and look at it. I actually read it fairly recently. And and I would say there's one expression of religion that that feels more like a medieval Catholicism. And I, there may be an outside reference or two to Judaism, but it felt like the religions here were more inspired by Catholicism and, and Islam than a direct representation of them. And if I remember right from the book, it takes place like 8,000 years in the future. So hmm. that's not Im- impossible. I don't want to like um, just flat out say, no, that's not accurate. But I don't I don't remember that directly, at least from the first book. Uh, there's the, the primary um, quadrilogy, if I can use that term. <laughs> the first story is, is four stories. And then Frank Herbert went crazy and just kept writing forever, it seemed like. So <clears throat> there you go. Love it. Well, we'll uh, take a short break, Adam. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about some of the delayed releases of some pretty big blockbuster movies that were scheduled to come out over the next couple of years. And Adele is back in the news with a new single. So stay with us on Mornings with Carmen. More with Adam Holtz up next. Twenty minutes past the top of the hour, we've been chatting with Adam Holtz and Adam. During the break, you put your crack research staff uh, looking into the theme of Judaism within Dune. What did you find out? Well, I found on one of the main Dune websites that Judaism is in fact the only surviving religion from Old Earth. Wow! So uh, your listener was absolutely correct, and um, I think it's it's a minor enough story in the at least in the first book, Dune. That I don't remember seeing it, but uh, obviously there must have been a passing reference to it somewhere. Yeah, indeed. Well, if we needed more evidence that the listeners are most often smarter than the host, uh, well, yeah, we don't. We don't absolutely. need. We don't need more than that. Well, let's turn our attention to some of the blockbuster releases that have been scheduled to come out, especially as theaters are reopening across the country, and we see a, quite a bit of delay in the Marvel universe. But one in particular caught my attention that was not Marvel related, but that was a hero of my youth, Indiana Jones and Harrison. Ford is still playing this figure, but are we concerned that this movie might get delayed, Adam? Well, it looks like it is going to be delayed because Hollywood is is concerned still that COVID is keeping people away from the theaters, and so um, Harrison Ford is pushing eighty, and they're pushing Indiana Jones. What are we at? Five, six, seven? Somewhere in there, right? I think I think five. Um, or maybe six. See, there have been enough that I honestly can't remember. Uh, they are pushing it back, and Marvel just announced that, with the exception of Spider-Man uh, No Road Home, they're pushing all of their upcoming releases back three months. So each one will move back to the slot that was you know, the next one in line had. And I think what it shows is that studios are just really concerned that these massive investments that they've made in these movies – won't pay off. And another thing that I just want to tell your audience that they may not be aware of, when it says that a movie costs $200 million, you might think you only need to make $200 million to break even. But typically, movie theaters split revenues 50-50 with theaters. So if we're talking theatrical revenue, a $200 million movie 
needs to make 400 million to break even just on the production cost. But a lot of times the marketing budget will be 100 to 200 million dollars. So most of these big blockbusters like Dune was probably in the 200 million territory. To get the second one greenlit, it needs to make five or 600 million dollars internationally. So if you've ever wondered, oh, why did my favorite movie not get a sequel? It's because a lot of these movies, they just don't make enough money to make that kind of investment again. And COVID has made that worse, which is why Marvel and Disney are trying to protect their investment. Well, it's killing me, I have to say, Adam, because Spidey was my favorite superhero. And, and off the record, maybe even at the age of 50, he remains my favorite superhero. Uh, All if good, I could, man. Right. If I could find a radioactive spider, I would allow it to bite me on the spot uh, to see if right. I could climb those walls. So it's a bum that that's getting delayed a bit. Uh, well, let's turn our attention over to Adele, who is, of course, yeah. one of the one of the most popular pop artists of the last decade or so. And last I saw, Adele said that she was not going to be making music anymore. She's going to be focusing on her family. But uh, not surprisingly, perhaps she has come back into the music world. But it was just a single that she released this time. Do I have that right? That's correct. And each of her albums has been based on the age she was when she recorded it. So she had 19 was her first one and then 21. And this one's called 30. Amazingly, it's been nine years since the last Adele uh, album. And since then, she has gotten married, moved away from showbiz. And now she's gotten divorced. And this single is about her divorce. Mm. And so uh, it is it's a painful single. And it's one that I think people who have gone through a divorce may both relate to and be triggered by. Mm. Um, and actually, as I'm doing a little bit of research here, I forgot she had an album called 25 as well. So this is her fourth album. Um, and it's a sad thing. And I think celebrity is incredibly hard on relationships. And so, you know, we may wonder, man, why can't these celebrities stay married but, you know, they're dealing with all of the pressure that that we deal with in a normal marriage on top of the pressure of celebrity, which is not to give them an out. But when this happens, it's a tragedy. Right. And and I'm not surprised. And so it seems like Adele is really processing some of that in this song. And my guess is when her album comes out, there'll be more on this new album, 30 that uh, she's talking about divorce as well. Yeah, indeed. Adam, we have a, just a minute left. Did you see anything in the news last night about the tragic tragedy with the Alec Baldwin um, where, where yes, a firearm went off on the set? So just maybe in 30 seconds or so, give us a little taste of what happened there. Yeah, he's filming a Western in New Mexico, and uh, apparently it, he discharged a gun, and one person was killed and another person Ugh. was still in the hospital. And I think it was... I'm, I may not get these. I think it was like the director of photography right. or one of the producers. And then the director of the film was hospitalized. And there, it sounds like there's an investigation underway as to why there was a loaded weapon or whether it was even loaded with a bullet, if it was some sort of freak accident. I mean, even weird things happen with blanks with, with guns, you know? Uh, and so they don't really know. He hasn't been charged or taken into custody. It right. seems like just a terrible tragic accident yeah it was pretty horrible to see that news come across well adam thanks for all of the insight not just into movies and into music but at the top of the hour with what you had to say about social media and kids just appreciate all you do as part of shepherding us in our in our media tastes you bet love talking to you yeah we'll take a short break and we'll preview what's coming up in the last half of the show with uh, reverend dr bruce ashford in the ten commandments
Well, up next, we're going to have a conversation with Bruce Ashford. We had a chance to record this conversation a little bit earlier, and uh, I asked Bruce a bit about the Ten Commandments. He's going to release a series of articles that takes us into each of those commandments. And one of the questions I had for him was the relevance of the Ten Commandments for life today, especially because we see in the New Testament this shift from living under the law to now living under the grace that has come through the forgiveness of Jesus, in which we are then empowered by the inhabiting Spirit to become the law, not just do the law, but become the law. And so Bruce did a really good job talking about the relevance and the role of the Ten Commandments in our lives and the lives of our society around us. So stay with us for Bruce Ashford up next on Mornings with Carmen. The Persian king and his right-hand man, Haman, had such disregard for human life that they could pronounce a bloodbath and then enjoy cocktails. As recorded in the book of Esther, Haman dispatched couriers to each of the provinces with a command and an offer. The command to kill all the Jews. The offer, plunder their possessions. The date dictated by the casting of the die was still 11 months away. But Proverbs 16.33 says people throw lots to make a decision, but the answer comes from the Lord. Chance did not determine the date. God did. And even though this book of Esther does not mention his name, it reveals his will. It was God who delayed the date for 11 months, giving his plan time to unfold. And it was God who prompted Mordecai and Esther to take a stand for what is right. And God will do the same for you, my friend. Welcome back to the show, and we are joined at this time by friend of the program, longtime friend of the program, Bruce Ashford, who, Bruce, I don't know what your current title is these days. It seems like maybe you're the theological wizard of all things, or, or what, what are you up to these days? I know you've done quite a bit in life. Yeah, so I have taken a job at a uh, theological think tank is what they call it. It's a collection of nerds, a gaggle of nerds <laughs> who uh, write on matters related to Christianity, and I'm the senior fellow in public theology at the Kirby Lang Center at Cambridge University in England. And uh, basically, that means that I reflect upon um, the relationship of Christianity to public life, to the public square, and all of the things that we discuss and debate in the public square. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. I'm also, um, I've started doing some competitive swimming um, in the past few months. I'm not sure that's relevant to your audience. but, I'm, <laughs> but uh, Well, I, I think to be a swimmer, though, Bruce, uh, that, that, at your age, I mean, we don't want to say how old we are, right? But it's got to be nice. It kind of gets those competitive juices flowing again. It does, you know. I mean, you know, at my advanced age and condition, <laughs> I'm especially proud of myself. Thank you for mentioning it. I love it. Well, I know you've got a series of articles that are going to be released here in the weeks and the months ahead, and we could talk about any number of them because I think it's going to be quite prolific what is all coming out. But the, the one we wanted to land on this morning was the intersection of the Ten Commandments within our public and social life. And I know you've got an article coming out on the Ten Commandments. And before we get into them and, and talk about each one and, and how they relate to our lives, I think something that comes up for us as believers, especially New Testament believers, that, that focus our energies theologically and understandably within the New Testament, is we wonder what relation does the Old Testament have to help guiding our life moving forward. So we're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments, but I think some of us wonder, is that portion of the law, is that portion of what happened on Mount Sinai, is any part of that relevant for our life today? Why are we bringing it up if we're living in this new covenant? So how would you respond to that? Yeah, those are, that's a good question. I want to break your question into two. And the first question uh, is basically, what are the two types of 
broadly speaking, two types of law that we see in the Bible, and those are natural law and revealed law. Now, natural law is just what God has revealed about himself to all people, all times, and all places. Romans 2 talks about the law written on the heart, and these are moral principles that all people have ingrained in them when they're born, and some of those principles, are, all of them are revealed also in the New Testament, but they're primarily revealed just through our conscience and uh, through creation. And then we have revealed law, and that is where God breaks into the universe and says something special to his people, and that's the Bible. And uh, then within that, within the category of revealed law, there's three kinds of law. This is going to be very helpful for interpreting the New Testament. You, you can divide Old Testament law into moral, civil, and ceremonial law. The moral law is composed of things that are based on God's character, and it's applicable to all people, all times, and all places. The civil law are laws that God gave to Israel when Israel was a theocracy in the ancient Near East, and civil law is not relevant to us. You know, when God says, you know, stone somebody because they did such and such, that doesn't apply to us today. And then you have ceremonial law. Those are laws like, you know, Old Testament law that told the Jewish people not to mix milk and meat. Or the one that says, don't touch pigskin, you know, no more football. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, those laws don't apply to us today. Jesus fulfilled those laws. Um, those laws are meant to remind Israel to keep them, their hearts clean. So they had rules about keeping their bodies clean uh, in order to remind them to keep their hearts clean. We don't need those laws anymore because we have Jesus as a reminder to keep our hearts clean. And so with the Ten Commandments, we're going we're gonna to focus on the moral law, which is universally applicable. Uh, because it's a natural law. It's natural to all people and embedded in their conscience. That's a really helpful set of paradigms to work with in terms of those three categories. Bruce, one more question about that before we get into some of the depth of the commandments themselves. And that is if I'm just cracking open my scriptures this morning and, and I look into Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers or some of these chapters where we do see quite a bit of language around these three versions of different laws, is there an easy way for the reader just within the English language to try to discern which of these things is a civil law, which is a moral law, and which is a ceremonial law? You know, there's not really an easy way because the Bible, you know, is uh, it's not a systematic theology text. We wish that it were, <laughs> but uh, God didn't reveal it that way. He revealed the Bible mostly in narrative and poetry and prose. And so what we have to do, and I, I'm, I, I believe his intention in that was to get us to work hard and to have faith and to pray through our interpretation of the Bible is because it's good for us to practice faith and for it to be a little difficult for us to understand um, everything. I mean, that's frustrating to us sometimes, but it was obviously it was God's intention. And so as we practice faith and lean on God, God begins to re reveal these things to us. And moral, civil, and ceremonial law will become rather obvious. When we talk about, when we talk about the Ten Commandments today, we're going to talk about the moral law. And I think we'll, uh, there'll be an aha moment for listeners. Oh, yeah, these things are universal and for all peoples, all places, and all times. And, uh, and then uh, the, the, the civil law is pretty easy because it relates to the laws of a nation, right, rather than the, uh, laws for individuals and groups of people to follow. And then ceremonial law is just the kind of odd laws that we're not used to, you know, that, that Christianity doesn't give us. Now, again, super helpful. Well, take us into these Ten Commandments. I know you're releasing an article, and maybe before getting into the specific commandments, what is the basic thrust of the article? Why did, what prompted you to write it? Yeah, so, you know, the Ten Commandments, normally people read them and, um, and rightly think of personal application. Here's what I should do or not do. But what I do in this series is show that the Ten Commandments provide the best ten categories for, for um, viewing our social, cultural, and political problems. 
in the United States. And so I focus on that. It'll be a series of 14 articles, three introductory articles, one article each on the Ten Commandments, and then a concluding article. And Jeepers, I, I have a hard time seeing any socio, uh, socio-political issues going on in our country <laughs> right now. What you're, what you're suggesting, though, is that a good look at the Ten Commandments might help bring moral order to a secular society, that there's something beyond just even believers that a society can really organize around these principles. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's going to have to be willing on the part of the people. People are going to have to, we're going to have to embrace God's law on our own. You know, everything can't be legislated politically. You know, po- politics is not the solution. It's a piece of the puzzle, but definitely not the solution. We're going to have to embrace, God's people are going to have to embrace uh, the moral law, and we're going to have to show a watching world uh, the frightening beauty of the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. But there's a beauty to these commandments that God intends us uh, for us to live in a way that causes us to flourish and to refrain from living in a way that causes destruction. We're talking with Bruce Ashford this morning around the intersection of moral law and public theology and, and what we can learn from the Ten Commandments as a society that may help us bring some ease and some peace some shalom into the midst of the civil unrest. Bruce, we're going to step away for just a minute, and when we come back, let's get into some of the commandments themselves, maybe tease us within these series of articles about how a specific commandment, if we live by these things, can help bring us a bit of peace. So more to come with Bruce Ashford up next. Welcome back to the show. We've been chatting about the Ten Commandments with Bruce Ashford, who does his work at the intersection of theology, Bible, and public life. And Bruce, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments, more from a flyover view. Why don't you take us into some of the commandments you choose, which one you'd like to start with, and and give us a little tease that I know you're going to dress out more fully in these series of articles that, that is coming out. But tease us. Give us a commandment, and what do you see within that commandment for public life? Yeah, so the Ten Commandments are divided into two tablets, and uh, the first uh, uh, four commandments uh, have directly to do with how we relate to God, and the last six have more directly to do with how we relate to other people. And the first commandment is of vital significance, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, there aren't really any other gods in terms of um, there's only one God, but there are things in this world that we ascribe ultimacy to and uh, ascribe such significance to them in our lives that functionally they become the God for us. Sex, money, power, I mean, you name it. And when a society, when enough people, when there's a critical mass in our society who have displaced God from his default position and placed other gods on his throne, it bodes badly for society. I think of a phenomenon that we call expressive individualism. It's the view that uh, the, the point of a person's life is to be authentic, and the way to be authentic is to align our life with our deepest desires, and the way for a society to be authentic is to applaud other people for aligning their lives with their deepest desires. Well, the Bible teaches us that our deepest desire is actually to worship false gods, is to put God off the throne and put something else on, and when we do that, the con- there are going to be consequences. We can't flout God's law forever with impunity, um, that we're, um, we're going to get punished for it. And not just God directly punishing us, but just the law of, of uh, uh, cause and effect. Uh, that's the whole point of the book of Proverbs, that if you, you, if you live badly, in general, you're going to get bad results. And if you live well, in general, you're going to get good results. So thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment says something like, it says, uh, thou shalt not make 
any graven images or any images of God. And so the point of this one contrasts with the first one. The first one says, worship only the one true and only God. The second one says, don't make that one and true God into your own image. Let him be who he actually is. Don't misrepresent him. You know, don't think, ah, you know what, God is in the 21st century. He's a lot more loose with uh, morality these days, you know. Uh, He can't be as upset about, you know, adultery or, uh, you know, theft, intellectual theft or things that we, you know, might excuse. Um, So we tend to think that we're worshiping one true and only God, but we make him into the image of a 21st century American. We assume that God agrees with our way of, of seeing things. And then the, the, the next two really quickly, both relate directly to God. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This doesn't have to do with putting God's name, uh, you know, in combination with a curse word. I mean, that it, it does apply to that, but mainly it, don't call yourself a Christian and then live consistently against God. I mean, all of us are going to be inconsistent. We're going to sin, but it's saying, listen, if you call yourself a Christian and just brazenly sin and don't care about it, then you're using God's name in vain. You're using it in a way that tarnishes his name rather than uh, polishes his name and shows his beauty. And then finally, the last one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is a universal law mixed with a particular because God doesn't intend for us to worship on Saturday like he did for the Jews, but he does intend for all people to have a day where they, where they spend their time resting from their normal labor and where we focus our attention on God and our gratitude to him. <clears throat> and so th- those are the first four. If you want, we can talk about the second tablet, or we or we can talk a little bit more about those first four. Yeah, let me do a follow-up on that. I, I'm mindful that some of these, all four of them actually that you reference, would require some measure of a theocentric worldview that God actually does exist, that God is actually worthy of worship. But living in a secularized country in which you're going to have all stripes of different kinds of people, some believers, many not, including a whole subsection of atheists as well, is there something within these moral laws, Bruce, that somebody could say that actually is a better way of life to to be thinking not in terms of self-interest and self-absorption or or living in sort of these tacit social contracts where as long as you don't bother me, I won't bother you. Uh, what, what would be within some of these commandments that you could say to even the secularized atheist, hey, look, this is still a better way of life even if you don't believe in God? Yeah, I mean, wh- one of the ways of doing that is showing cause and effect. And so if you take uh, societies who have as a whole, have embraced a false god, look at the negative consequences. The French Revolution was an atheistic revolution, massive bloodshed on an enormous scale. Uh, Communism, Russian communism, Soviet communism, um, the the god that they put on the throne's material equality. And once again, massive bloodshed, violence, economic destruction. So if you just look at the laws of cause and effect on a society, when a society worships the a wrong God or worships the right God in the wrong way, um, there are negative consequences. And then on the personal level, on the private level, the Bible teaches that um, this law is written on the heart and that it cannot be erased, that no atheist is genuinely and truly an atheist, that deep down, uh, in the Middle Ages, theologians talked about surface level conscience and deep level conscience. Surface level conscience can be numbed or seared uh, for example, if we sin often enough, if we rationalize often enough with our intellect that God doesn't exist, we genuinely begin to believe it. But deep down at the deepest level in our conscience, there's a knowledge that God exists, and that knowledge cannot be erased. It'll never be erased. It'll always be there. And so a person who doesn't believe in God 
is going to be a person who's cross-pressured, to use the phrase that philosopher Charles Taylor came up with. On the one hand, uh, an increasingly secular society is going to encourage them to manage their life without reference to God. It's going to confirm their belief that either God is unimportant or maybe he doesn't exist or he definitely doesn't exist. And so that's one pressure. But the other pressure is that built into the universe and built into the human, each human being are signals of transcendence, are, is, the, is the knowledge that God does exist. And so there's deep level conscience that shows us that. There's des the design of the world. It shows us that there has to be a designer. If there's a belief in any kind of moral law, moral right and wrong, there has to be a lawgiver. And if not, then what's right and wrong isn't really right and wrong. It's just what we've decided is mm -hmm. right and wrong. And, there, and there's a law of cause and effect. And there's also uh, the design of the human being ourself. The fact that we are inescapably spiritual beings and many atheists most atheists say that they're spiritual but not religious well those two things can't be separated and so the spirituality that they feel is built into them by god and is supposed to point them to god hmm. that's incredibly helpful bruce we have about two minutes left here so we can kind of put the next tablet or the remaining six into maybe a bucket of laws that can govern our lives together it's pretty self-evident when you start talking through these that this is just simply a good way to live with one another so maybe talk right. from the from the bucket view putting them all in the same kind of category of how we treat one another okay yeah so uh number five honor your father and mother this is a transitional commandment and it refers not only to honoring your adult parents and taking care of them which is good for society but also honoring uh, authorities in general including the government then you have thou shalt not kill unlawfully this applies to the pro-life issue. It applies to war crimes. Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And this relates to the question of gay marriage. It relates to the question of adultery within marriage. It relates to the, the uh, propensity toward uh, sexual, complete sexual freedom and, and uh, quote unquote liberation in our society. Thou shalt not steal. You know, it is uh, important that we don't place such value on material goods or intellectual goods that we're, we're willing to steal from other people. Uh, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. A society built on lies and on a, uh, uh, that's composed of people who are willing to lie and deceive is going to disintegrate very quickly. You see this in the very corrupt regimes all around the world uh, where, that, that are built mostly on lies and deception. Mm. And then finally, don't covet your neighbor's house or donkey or whatever. And I've never coveted a donkey, to be honest <laughs> with you. Put my cards on the table, you know. <laughs> you know, just never never happened to me. But uh, don't covet your neighbor's uh, Tesla. And uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And don't covet your neighbor's house. I mean, the, the point is to be content with what God has given us. And a society that's content is going to be a society that's at peace. A society that's discontent is going to be a society riven by turmoil and strife and, uh, and violence. Mm. Bruce, it's a pretty compelling case you make that uh, something from the Ten Commandments like this, if, if we are willing to attend to it, believer or otherwise, would be a great way to arrange society. Thanks for the tease on this. Remind us when these articles are coming out, because I know you're going to get into all of them more in depth. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be on the show. I blog at bruceashford.net, and there are a couple thousand articles similar to these already on the on the website. So get on bruceashford.net and search uh, keywords, and, and you'll find some short articles that hopefully will help you think Christianly through public square issues. Uh, great stuff as always, Bruce. Great to catch up with you again, and thanks for your work. We'll take a short break here and wrap up our show here for the 22nd of October.
Well, it is a delight, as always, to be with you here in this host chair for the day to sub for Carmen, to be part of waking up in the morning like this, fixing our eyes on Jesus together. Again, Carmen is heading to the Hartford, Connecticut area today, and she'll be there available tomorrow for a live event. And you can text the word MEET to the studio at 877-933-2484. If you're anywhere near the Hartford area, it's a great opportunity to meet Carmen off the air and uh, just experience some of her wit and wisdom and, and what she brings each day. So grateful for her and again, grateful for all of you. And as we head out to the rest of our day, remember that we are indeed Christians. We are followers of the way. There is the way of Jesus. It is the only way that is the eternal way. And so as we continue to grow in discipleship in a variety of ways to shine light in the world, be encouraged that God will not leave you. God will not forsake you in the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties of life. There is a hope, there is a king, and it's the only king of the only eternal kingdom. Have a great day, everybody. We'll catch you soon here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.